customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Monday, April 18th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we continue our early season question of when to worry about slow starters. A few more names have surfaced from me as I've gone through the process of making some more moves. We're going to talk about dart throws off to excellent starts and how to adjust their values. Several mailbag questions. We'll get one about Jacob deGrom. We got one about Alex Verdugo's fast start. So tons of ground to cover today. And frankly, you know, if I had to pitch in the early game in Boston today, I would have got shelled just like Lucas Giolito did a year ago because I'm pretty groggy for a Monday. Usually I come into the week and I feel really good. I'm not rested coming off of this weekend, which is a, a rare thing for me. And I think this is probably what people with young children feel like all the time, if I had to approximate it. And it, it's kind of terrible. Uh, yeah, we uh, turned the dial to 11 this weekend by having over two babies uh, and two toddlers and one, two, three, four, five, six family members staying over. Uh, for a first birthday party, a 10th birthday party, and an Easter egg hunt. So I am <laughs> toast. I am, I'm just like happy that there's nobody in the house right now. I just, I feel like it's time for me to go take a nap. Right. Monday and Tuesday will be your weekend from the <laughs> weekend that you just had. I think the, the funny thing that has changed in my family, you know, now that myself and my siblings are are all grown up and all three of us have spouses now and there's even a couple grandkids we have easter eggs at my parents house and we also have beers hidden around the yard for mm. the grown-up children to discover and i think that's the the new wrinkle that has made me appreciate the uh the the bunny and egg side of easter a bit more now that they have found a way to adapt it for degenerate grown-ups like myself <laughs> we we had those two little small dogs pooping everywhere so uh, mm -hmm. there were some other surprises uh, to be found 
Yeah, yeah, not the Easter <laughs> eggs that uh, you're really looking for. A lot but less fun than beer. <laughs> yeah, I recommend beer, uh, not the dog mess <laughs> if possible. But uh, let's dig into some things we are worried about, players we are worried about. This came in as a question last week. We kind of poked at it a little bit on Thursday, but I said it would be more of a recurring topic because I think the more we, we get into this, the types of players we're worried about are going to change. You know, Initially, it's Kevin Smith isn't playing enough. Should I cut him or should I wait it out? Nick Senzel has been on the COVID list. Is he going to come back and be the guy I expected him to be? Or is that little bit we saw before he went on the COVID list a sign that he's not the guy we thought he was, right? We're dealing with these micro samples and eventually we get to the point where big players, guys like Mookie Betts, start to creep into our thoughts of is something actually wrong with Mookie Betts or is this just an early season slump? And I know this is something you started talking about. It's probably been five years at least since you first introduced this back at first pitch Arizona where you could look at you know rolling exit velocity graphs and different things with StatCast and potentially find clear indicators that a player is not healthy. But I'm curious to know, is it possible this early to see something like that in the underlying numbers? And I think this is a broader question, but for me, I am thinking about bet specifically. I've mentioned on the show before of of early players. He is my most heavily rostered, like foundational early player, and it's been a, a rough three series for him so far. Certainly not enough to panic and you know, reserve him, but definitely a guy where I'm concerned that because we had underlying health issues last year, I'm starting to wonder if he's actually just not healthy right now. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, like uh, anything that we're supposed to be looking at, barrels, uh, even hard hit rate, any of those things, we're supposed to be looking at at least about 50 balls in play before we get more signal than noise. And I'm looking at the top of the barrel leader board, and we've got guys with 23, 25 events. Matt Olson, who's on fire putting everything in play, has 30 events, but I would say so the average player right now has like 20 to 22 batted ball events. So it's, it's about halfway, which means, and, and what happens at 50 is that you would take both what happens, like so you would regress it, but you would regress it about 50% to league average and 50% to their current demonstrated what they're doing, right? So if you're halfway to halfway, that means you're pretty much still 75% league average right now in terms of, when you're looking at somebody and you're saying, oh, he has a, you know, Jose Abreu has a 26% barrel rate. Well, you would use 25% of that 26% and then you would use uh, 75% of league average is like four and a half, right? So you would still regress super heavily. And uh, so I, I, I'm just not panicking. And I think the longer the track record, the more, and the, and the lack of any sort of chatter, you know, I think, you know, it's hard to read between the lines on what managers say and stuff, but there's, are, are, are there like frequent updates about how he's feeling? You know, are there, is his manager talking about his hip or his back or, or is he taking days off to, to nurse it? Uh, it seems like he's playing most of the time. So, uh, you know, maybe if there's more smoke around it, I'd, I'd be a little bit more worried, but uh, you know, and then the flip side, you know, there are some really nice things that Christian Yelich is doing right now. He's got a really good barrel rate. The max EV, uh, the average EV is up. Max EV looks good. Like, you know, a lot of this looks good. I don't know that I would uh, sink a ton of uh, capital into getting him, but the nice thing is uh, he's got the low batting average. So maybe that makes him 
uh, a mild buy low, but it's a mild buy low because mostly because of the track record, right? Mm -hmm. Not like you're not buying low, but like a hundred percent because of this like 15% barrel rate that you, that you've seen in, in 20, what in 30 and 20 bad ball events. So yeah, just 20 so far missed the home run by about a foot in the beginning of that series against St. Louis. And that was back on Thursday afternoon uh, has been hitting the ball hard, a 75% hard hit rate early on. I think the, the places you're seeing the red ink right now for Christian Yelich are, are comparable to what we saw before the 2020 and 2021 slide. The only thing that's still different. And again, dealing in the tiny samples, the K rate's still up. And that's one of those things that was starting to go the wrong way. Uh, back in 2020 that we wondered like is is that an underlying skills change even if these these surface numbers are are all out of whack can we trust that the k rate is not going to be as good as it was earlier in his career we saw it settling at 23.8 percent last year i think these early indications this year that yeah we're probably not looking at a guy that's going to strike out 20 percent of the time anymore it's going to be some level above that previous k rate which does chip away at some of the ceiling, but if he's going to hit the ball as hard as he's been hitting the ball, he's still going to draw walks, still going to play nearly every day. It looks more like a Yelich rebound than a Yelich underperform start. Yeah, it is uh, interesting, though. I mean, like, uh, could you compare him to Mookie? You know, uh, would you, would you like be like, oh, I think, would you say something like a hot takery? Like, uh, would you, would you take Christian Yelich homers over Mookie Betts homers the rest of the way? That I probably ooh, I probably would consider it. That's a great toss-up, actually, for home runs. I mean, I think both have to begin the season, reduced expectations. To begin the season, you know, you would have said easily Mookie. Yeah. Hmm. I'm a little off guard. I'm a little, a little surprised. I, I, I think it's a, the fact that I'm waffling on it gives me mm-hmm. a, a sense that it's Pretty close, an appropriate question, a fair line to draw uh, between it's those two players. A nice, to, nice to look at the bat X though, which you know is maybe one of the most aggressive progressive projection systems when it comes to Statcast information. Not really wavering. Bat X still has Mookie Betts for two seventy nine average and thirty homers. So I will calm myself down and tell myself <laughs> it's only been three series, and yeah, they're not talking about him still having any sort of physical issues, but he's the player that I'm worrying about because of how much I have him and the places I have him being pretty important. I know Charlie Morton is off to a bit of a disappointing start, and you and I both liked him quite a bit as a good value throughout draft season. Curious if you have anything you've seen in the underlying numbers, you know, watching these first couple starts from Charlie Morton that are giving you some cause for concern as we move forward. Yeah, when I did the stuff plus movers for a piece last week, you know, there was the sad other underbelly of it, which is the the stuff plus losers. Um, and, uh, you know, one, one of the guys that was on that list, you know, Sonny Gray, minus 17, Charlie Morton, minus 16, uh, with a 96 stuff plus after his first start. Uh, let me see if I've got his second start in here yet. Uh, yes, 104 stuff plus after his second start. So that that could have been some early uh, some early season, you know, short spring stuff. Happy to see it jump up to 104. That's still not where he was in the past. I would 
I would say that I think that aging has come from Morton a little bit. Um, and I don't think we're going to see just a straight repeat of that, you know, three, three ERA last year and 11 K nine. So I would say he comes down off of that a little bit. How much would you consider a player's past levels of variance with something like stuff plus, like if you could look at previous years of Charlie Morton, if his highs and lows were wider, if there was a bigger gap between his best stuff numbers in a, on a given day and his worst stuff numbers on a different day, would that give you like more confidence in his ability to get back to where he should be? He, it's funny. You know, I think one of the largest uh, sources of change in stuff plus like from start to start is pitch mix and he's not one of these guys that really has you know <laughs> a lot of other pitches to go to right so you know it's not like uh he should uh be going uh really far up and down i think he'd probably be tied to his velo on any given day um and so I think you could do something as simple as I mean if you if you look at a lot of those guys that lost stuff plus, you know, they lost Velo. Yeah. Uh, Sonny Gray's down. Morton was down in his first start. He's down a little bit on the year. Um but uh, you know, half a tick, I think he can maybe survive. I had a, another general question for you as we think about you know what's changing, what's moving the needle as we, we make these early season decisions. Do you have any healthy players that you were consistently dropping as you went about your fab on Sunday night? You know, sometimes you just uh, it gets too crowded, uh, and you, need, you have certain needs. So the Jonathan India thing was interesting for me. Um, Oh, uh, just an example real quick on Charlie Morton. Last year, he did have some oscillation. He kind of was either 115 or 110 stuff plus all year. So there is that sort of expectation that maybe he could be up or down five points at any given time. Uh, so when he started out in 96, you're like, oh, even if I give him two standard deviations to 106, he's down. You know what I mean? Yep. And then he did have a better start in the next one. Now he's at 104. So I would I would I would say that he this year he's going to oscillate between 105 and 110 maybe, uh, whereas last year he pretty much oscillated between 110 and 115 with some peaks at you know 120 and 125. But um, any case, when it comes to uh, healthy guys, I dropped. Uh, I did drop a, a couple shares of Mike Mustakis. Mm. It just. You know, I was looking at the projection. The projections are for like 230 with 22 homers. The start wasn't that great. And I was just, I'm not, fe like, I was, I was just like, I, what am I holding on to here? I need, and with John in India, uh, which I have a few, more than a few shares of, up in the air until later today, I couldn't ha not have a middle infielder ready to go behind him, you know? So I just sort of decided that Charlie Morton, uh, that Mark Mustakis was in that almost like streamer bat territory where I just had to, I'd have something better this week and maybe I'll get him back next week. Yeah, I think with Mustakis, I mean, I, I liked him throughout draft season because I thought he, even before the Suarez trade, I just thought he was going to play a lot because of the universal DH. I thought because of the time lost these last couple seasons, part of the big issue for him was just not being on the field, being able to rack up stats the way he ordinarily does. It's a bad start. I mean, the K rate's way up above 40% early on, hasn't drawn a walk yet, doesn't have a barrel yet. 
only 19 batted balls, but I, it, especially in 12 team leagues, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it always, it hurts to drop a player that you really did like for the last four months. But sometimes you have to realize that the player you liked was on the fringe of your roster, even when you liked them and how you felt about that player does not change the skills does not change the concerns does not change the projections this is where the projections i think are a really good way to sort of ground your expectations you mentioned that with with kevin smith i think going into the weekend and i think the thing that i'm still really struggling with as i make these drop decisions is what's the difference between the player i'm adding and the player i'm dropping is it just a week's worth of good results if playing time is comparable is there enough of a difference to justify making the move? I think we have this, uh, this early pressure to try and, and find value right away because value opens up immediately. And there's some truth to it that like you can't sit on your hands and, and wait for six weeks to see if Moustakis hits. But I also think the player you might be adding for him, is Owen Miller that much more interesting than Mike Moustakis? Maybe. Is Ramon Urias that much more interesting than Mike Moustakis? Eh, probably not, right? Like there's there's kind of a sliding scale there where I just think it's it's very difficult to find what, players who are clearly better than yeah. the bottom end guys that you're dropping. And what ended up happening was I had other stash guys that I liked the upside of better. And so I basically said, okay, Mike Moustakis is my functional backup player. He's a function he's functional. He's not I'm not holding him for his upside anymore. And so his function is going to be 230 hitter with power. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's replaceable. So I just, what really happened is I chose to keep O'Neill Cruz on my, uh, you know, for another week or two because I would rather lose Mike Moustakis's upside than O'Neill Cruz's. You know, that, that was, that's a concrete example, but it, it is something that sort of happened uh, across the board where there was just a stash that I was like, I'm not going to drop that guy. So Mike Moustakis, you got to go. You're, you're, you're like, I'm going to, I'm keeping Ronald Acuna around another couple of weeks. Sorry, Mike Moustakis, you got to go, you know? So it was, it was a crunch created by some of my other tactics, but um, I think that I now lump Mike Moustakis together in, in a sort of functional bat. And there's it more, he's more uh, susceptible to, to weekly matchups. He's not a guy I'm just going to stick in there anymore. He's a guy that was going to be on my bench. So, you know, he can he can go and he can come based on, you know, sort of streaming and what matchups are coming and what my needs are at any given time. I also um, dropped a healthy Matt Barnes. I mean, a supposedly healthy Matt Barnes. Uh, I didn't like the way he was being used. His pitching plus is uh, fairly awful. Let me look at the most recent number before I report it. This isn't a position player thing, so I know I'm I'm all over the map with you, but um, well, it's, it's just what what actually moves the needle to get a player dropped. I mean, they had Jake Deacon yeah. get a save last week. Hansel Robles had a save. I think I was talking to Todd Zola before pickups on Sunday, and we were looking at Robles, and he said Robles was warming up before the Red Sox had a big inning in the eighth to uh, you know make Bingo. that a non-save situation. So. I think there's just a lot happening in Boston where it's either a full-blown committee or there's actually a chance that Alex Cora likes someone else better. Plus on 91. Too. That's yeah. bad out of the pen. That's really bad. You know, uh, 100 is supposed to be average. If people are asking about sort of the scale and stuff. 100 is supposed to be average, but it includes relievers. So you you will have some pitchers that are at 95 and 96 that are definitely usable, starting pitchers, where maybe they have multiple pitches. Eduardo Rodriguez doesn't have a great stuff number, but he has good location. He has multiple pitches. Like, he's still a viable starting pitcher. I don't know if I, I think he's that great, but, you know, 
you know, I'd still want to see good stuff out of a starter, but you know, so for a reliever, the functional average is more like 105, right? Mm-hmm. So Barnes is really far off. And um, I, what I saw, and uh, this could be actionable still for some people. I know uh, we don't do a Sunday show, um, but uh, Josh Stomont has like a 109 stuff plus, and he got that save in Kansas City, and we've been waiting for that forever. I don't know if we get to say that we were right about Josh Stomont because we've been saying it for like two years, <laughs> so we were we were right, but just really really late. Uh, but I think Josh Stomont's going to take that job. I think he's got the job already, and so I I feel like with uh, something a model like this, you just got to be you got to be you got to move fast. And I think with relievers, it's a little bit different than Mike Mustakas. I might have waited longer if Mike Mustakas had protection projection for like two sixty and thirty homers, then I would have waited longer. You know, because he would have had the track record, he would have had a nice projection. I would have waited longer on that. But with relievers, I think you just got to move fast, man. I think you know. Uh, Stomont didn't cost as much as, as some other closers because he didn't get two or three saves and maybe people don't think he really got it and so I went for it and I needed a third closer in a lot of places so Stomont was my big acquisition this this past win, this past week and just looking at the the big NFBC league that I'm in Matt Barnes among the players cut someone cut him straight up for Deekman and that was a, a 17% bid to get Deekman uh, interesting that that was the preference because I think Robles was available in that league and he went for a bit less. Or actually, maybe he'd been, had been picked up already in that particular league. But in, in leagues where Robles was available, I saw Robles going for more than Diekman. Uh Kyle Finnegan was a drop out of the bullpen. I think that makes sense. Uh, I think people dropping Alice Colomay. It seems like Daniel Bard is the preferred closer there, so no need to hold Colomay in that situation. Blake Trinan getting dropped, which, you know, with Craig Kimbrell there, I think is as good as Trinan is skills-wise. If you don't have holds, I, I understand. You just can't you can't get away with a player like that. Uh, Drew Steckenrider was a drop this weekend. Jake McGee. So I think most of those cuts all make sense. I, t- I try to look at this every week because sometimes you find players that were dropped unexpectedly and you can plan on bidding on them the following week when it comes up. But it also can give you some ideas like, hey, maybe something else is going on with this player. Like I didn't have this player and someone else in this league where I tend to trust the judgment of these other players cut this player loose. I should take a look and see if something's wrong because maybe I got this player somewhere else. I think uh, you know, Carlos Santana is another example, kind of like Bustakis. I think you can look at Carlos Santana and tell yourself fairly convincingly that he's just done. I think the difference, the thing that makes it even worse for Santana is that we know the Royals have a lot of bats mm-hmm. knocking on the door in the minors too. So Santana's and even some room, positional versatility in the major leagues. Yeah. Right? We're like Hunter Dozier can go over and play first and uh Oh yeah. So that whole playing time situation can shift really quickly. So I think a player like that is a little easier to let go of. Uh, but I think it's those younger guys. I think it's, it's Smith and Urias and Diego Castillo and some of these names we've talked about a lot the last couple of weeks that if you are caught in the middle of cutting or keeping them and you're looking at Owen Miller as the replacement, that's to me one of the most difficult decisions to make. Like when you look at Miller, Miller and, and Jose Siri, I think, were the two big position player pickups in the league that I'm looking at right now. Miller was a big pickup everywhere, had a fantastic week, totally makes sense. K-rate's down. He's showing power. Last season when he debuted in Cleveland, the ground ball rate jumped up a little bit. If you look at what he was doing in the upper levels of the minor leagues, he was showing, I think you could say, probably close to like 15 to 20 home run raw power. I don't think that's a stretch based on what we saw at AAA last season especially. Career high walk rate at AAA last year. 
doesn't seem like he's going to steal a lot of bases because in the minor leagues, I think he was nine for 18 for his career. So <laughs> not necessarily out of green lights there. But as we know, opportunities are there in Cleveland and Miller can move around a little bit. So looking at him versus Smith, Castillo, Arias, all those other guys that have been kind of tumbling around on the bottom of our roster for these first couple of weeks, is Miller clearly an upgrade? I'm not sure. There's a, there's a couple of things that bother me about Miller. One is that the Max EV 108, I know it's just a raw power descriptor and maybe doesn't have the, the greatest correlations to some of the outcome stats that we're all chasing, but at 108 is just not, it's not impressive. It's in the sort of 15 to 18 homer territory is where I'd put his raw power, right? That's, isn't that almost, what did you just say for his homers? Like think? 20, I think is the uh, yeah. high end, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think he's more like a 15 to 18. The other thing I don't like is he's right-handed. And I there's another debut that I think is pretty meaningful. Josh Naylor uh, got back on the field this past week. And, you know, Owen Miller was playing first base, which is uh, weird because he was like a shortstop. He was like a kind of a light-hitting shortstop when he got traded over there. So, uh, you know, Bobby Bradley seems like he's kind of on the outs there, uh, striking out too much, not playing. Um, but uh, so they're playing some some Owen Miller over there. But if you get Josh Naylor in there and you got Stephen Kwan and Miles Straw, Oscar Mercado is playing pretty well, and Ahmed Rosario is also playing in the outfield. Um, now you've got what you might call a crunch. It's not like any of the players is amazing, but they could play to a better level going forward than Owen Miller. You could be playing uh, Jimenez, Rosario on, on the infield, Quan, Straw, Mercado in the outfield, Naylor at first, and then Miller becomes more of a backup. So um, you know, there's a there's mo- a lot of moving parts there. They do seem like they're doing a kind of a Razian thing where they're going to move guys around a lot. And I just don't think that that produces seven starts a week for Owen Miller, uh, where you really want to get all those plate appearances. Yeah, I'm I'm going to say maybe he's a, a slight upgrade over a lot of the infielders mentioned. But if you told me right now Josh Naylor's slash line is going to be better than Owen Miller's at the end of the year. I'd say, yeah, you're probably right. It might not be by a lot, but I think it's interesting that Naylor is younger than Owen Miller, even though we've seen Naylor in the big leagues for a few seasons. I think the lefty-righty thing makes a big difference, too, as things get more crowded. Mm-hmm. He's hit balls harder. Uh, he has more of a track record of more more power. Uh, and he's not no slouch when it comes to making contact, either. And he's left-handed. I, I just think the problem I have with a player like Miller is that if he plays in just doesn't hit home runs, just plays every day all week, the bids are 1% to 2%. But because he hit a couple of home runs, bids are 12 to 15%. Mm-hmm. And you're just you're paying for past results in, in many cases. And I just think it's it, it seems like a fool's errand more often than not to chase the big week, even though there's some things that Owen Miller does pretty well. And I, I feel like I'm always... Talking down about Cleveland, I, I'm really not. I think they, for as little money as they spend, they do exceptionally you well. Hate their favorite team. I'm not. That that's that's not my turf. <laughs> that's that's that other guy. But that's Ohio State, job. on the other hand. Well, hey, look, I got my jab in. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pile on. That that would be. That would just be rude. Even well, though there is some evidence you hate their favorite team. 
<laughs> no. I had a great time in Cleveland. I had candied mm. bacon when I was there. It was amazing. Mm, yeah. is, that sounds good. Yeah. yeah I, had, I had a nice trip there. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's move on to some pitching questions. There was a question that came from Mike on Twitter, and it was looking at players that were sort of mid to late round dart throws who are off to good starts to the season. They've had a couple turns in the rotation. They're pitching well so far. And I think it's almost a a process-related question about how you rank players and how we adapt to early season changes in value. And it's also maybe just prioritizing these players in case there's a trade opportunity or even it's a shallow league maybe one or two of these guys are still out there dynasty like how much can you depend on these guys past this year even yeah so the names that were were thrown in here matt brash hunter green jesus lazardo andrew heaney tyler mcgill alex cobb and nestor cortez and i think of the list there we've talked about the first five quite a bit cobb that we talked about him on the velo was reportedly up this spring. I'm kind of curious where the stuff numbers have landed on him because I haven't looked him up yet. Mm-hmm. And then Nestor Cortez, I didn't get to see the outing against the Orioles yesterday, but I saw saw the stat line go by. K's galore in that outing. And I think of all these guys, Nestor Cortez was sort of just ignored this draft season relative to what he did a year ago. It was only 93 innings, but a sub-3 ERA, a 108 whip, 103 strikeouts. Did it with good control. A little bit of a home run issue. Not that big of a surprise, though, for a guy making half his appearances in Yankee Stadium. Uh, so I, I guess I'm going to start this with like a, a sub-question. Does Nestor Cortez belong in the conversation, fantasy-wise at least, with some of these other names, these guys that were more highly regarded prospects? You know, it was surprising to me that his best pitch by Stuff Plus is his is his forcing. He doesn't throw hard. He doesn't throw hard. Uh, he's 90-91, but it's really good shape. And his worst pitch is a slider. So uh, it is kind of tough to appreciate someone like that and to rank them and to to think about them going forward. But Ryan Yarborough had some really good seasons. And I think there's a bit of a comparison there for me. The one problem is that, you know, Cortez's best secondary is a slider. Yarros is a changeup, so he's kind of more of a soft contact guy, which is a little bit scarier year to year. Cortez, more strikeouts, a little bit more velo. But I do think that in any given season, I'm willing to bet on a profile like this, but I'm not willing to bet on it long term. I just feel like, you know, when you drop out of 88, you know, into 87 and 86, you really you saw how bad that season was for Yarbrough last year. 
I'm excited for Yarbrough when he comes back because he's supposedly throwing 91. I think he could he could have a good season again. And if you look at Yarbrough's numbers before last season, he had like a 3-2 ERA. You know, he like he had he was way better than people thought. So I think Cortez could be way better than people thought, and yet also not be a good bet year to year. Can be a good pickup in season when the command is good and he's got all his pitches working. But like as a dynasty asset, I still don't I still don't think he's a great dynasty asset. You know, I just I'm just not going to believe in a profile like that long term. But as a pickup this year, uh, yes, I would I would say he's in the top four. Uh, yeah, top four or five in that. He's he, the way I have him linked is with Cobb. You know, not much dynasty, not much dynasty long term, but has popped. Uh, they both have good command. They both have multiple pitches. They both know how to turn the lineup over. Cobb and Cortez are excellent pickups this year. I think they are pickup and keep guys. Um, and, but they just don't have any dynasty value. So those are my, my, my comparisons there. Yeah. I mean, Alex Cobb, good across the board right now in the pitching model. And obviously being in San Francisco, even if he was just kind of average across the board, it would play up in that ballpark. Right. I think Cortez has the opposite problem, but I think Cortez, at least, you know, you could maybe uh, avoid some like Toronto at home. Uh, but, um, and maybe Toronto, Toronto's such a beast, but, uh, but, you know, just, uh, avoid a few spot, spot starts. That's another thing about Cortez. I, I think I would have Cobb ahead of him. Cobb, uh, 135 on the, the, the splange, the split change that he throws. Splange. Uh, 97 on the uh, on the case on the knuckle curve, and then 86 stuff plus on the sinker, even with the good velo. But you know, as a package, it all does much better with that velo. Has the great home park, so yeah, I think neither one of these is somebody I would want to bet on long term. Like I said, but you know, so Hunter Green obviously always had dynasty value, was already like you know a big pick going in. I'm really happy to see not only. Uh, that uh, his fastball stuff plus is 160, which is in LOLOL territory, Um, but that his slider's at 120. So I think that's two good sliders, uh, two good pitches by stuff. No real problem with location that I saw so far. Um, Maybe uh, the occasional lefty will touch him uh, because the changeup wasn't great, Um, but uh, that's a really good package. He's number one on this list by dynasty and keeper value and i think in this season value this is this might be surprising this season value mcgill 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 tyler mcgill 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 brash green i'm going mcgill green brash Hmm. which may be a little bit surprising my my uh my revelation was this brash's fastball stuff plus is 85 now his slider stuff plus is 209 which is funny because somebody went on the radio and said that internally uh the mariners had a stuff plus on brash's slider between 190 uh 170 and 190 so our models are not that far apart uh which i thought was a, a nice sense of validation but yeah 209 i don't think i've ever seen that on a slider it's maybe the best slider in the game suddenly um, but the fastball uh, was surprisingly uh, poor numbers for the velo that he has. So, um, and then Megiel has Megiel has pushed his fastball stuff plus to 107, and he has three legit pitches in the changeup slider and fastball, and they go in different directions. 
So I think Brash may run into some problems with lefties, may walk a lot of them. Uh, I didn't look at exactly what every single one of those walks was against the White Sox, but I would figure that sometimes the guy with this profile with not the greatest fastball and two great breaking balls may choose to uh, walk lefties. And last thing I wanted to say is Stuff Plus does not consider platoon splits. So you'll find that Luis Heal or Matt Brash, they will be like way up there uh, in Stuff Plus and then maybe not as lofty heights in Pitching Plus because Pitching Plus does consider platoon splits of pitches. Hmm. Uh, so that's something that matters. Um, you know, it may be that Tyler McGill has the best season out of the three. In fact, I might go in this season value, McGill, Green, Brash, in keeper value, Green, Brash, McGill. Because McGill could drop like a view, uh, you know, could drop a tick or two and then be more like he was last year. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the the long, long term, it definitely makes sense to have McGill third of the group. I think it's all going to come back to location for me with Hunter Green. I mentioned this last time he came up. I, I still think he gets too much of the plate. He gets too much of the plate with his changeup. He gets too much he of the plate with his fastball. fastball kind of middle, middle. It's just so much but stuff. It's, it's, <laughs> but it's like 99. 99 Plus. miles an hour, you're going to yeah. get away with that more often. Whereas Brash being, what, 95 with his fastball, he's not going to get away with that location as often as Green does. I think the thing that makes it harder for me to trust Green in the short term, though, making that mistake and seeing so many hitters taking good swings on high velocity early on this season, mm. the park is a problem for me with Hunter Green. Mm. So I think that still pushes me Brash over Green, even though both are way up in value compared to where you were getting them on draft day. If we were redrafting right now, you've seen a couple starts. They don't count, but we're drafting today for the rest of the season. Is Hunter Green up in the pick 200 range? I mean, that's a pretty big leap from where he was. Is Brash in that range? Are they earlier? I mean, I think there's also a case to move them up even higher. So, like, when I thought Brash was a six starter, he was in uh, the rankings around 115 to 120. That's where I put six starters that I thought were super interesting. There was a bunch of good names there, right? When he became, when it was like he's locked for the fifth starter, then and we didn't have any, you know, data yet, any any sort of uh, stack cast or any sort of data. I put him in the eighties. That's where I put Tyler McGill to start the season, right? So just so you can kind of have a window in how my rankings are, the eighties, the sort of seventy-five to ninety is where I put really interesting arms that I think have a role, but we just don't have the track record. We're we're betting on, we're faith casting a little bit. I think all three of these guys have just gone past that. They are no longer where they would be in the 80s. So if I was ranking today, I would rank them probably in the 40s and 50s, you know, maybe the 40s. Should I push it harder than that? I don't know. I mean, there's still the track record isn't amazing, right? And, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of really uh, good pitchers with track records that I can put uh, 1 through 30, 1 through 35. Maybe these guys sneak into uh, the 30s. So that's that's where I would I, I would have them late thirties early forties probably. Yeah, I was just starting to think about where the rookies that really dominated last year, guys that came Logan up and Webb showed really well. Logan Webb and Shane McClanahan. I mean, they ended up cracking. I think we could say McClanahan was in the top one hundred eighty p wise in April. He was at one hundred one. So we're we're splitting hairs. Webb was going a lot earlier than that. Logan Webb finished with an ADP of about sixty five this season. So no, this season, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. going into so this, this is season. season after, right? So yeah. I think you know we need to see more. We need 
15, 20 plus starts each from these guys to really get them up that high. But but they are like Logan. They are the new Logan Webb. McGill is the Logan Webb. Brash and Green are the Alec Manoa, Shane McClanahan. That's 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 what's happening. That's yeah. where, that's that's how they pop in the model. That's what's going on. And there was two more names in there. I, th- I think they were interesting that we should not uh, just swim move past too too quickly. Luzardo and Haney. Uh, there are some things that have changed. Lazardo has changed the movement on some of his pitches. Uh, you know, he's got a little more ride on his four seam. Uh, he's got more velocity across the board. Haney has changed his breaking ball to more of a sideways uh, breaking ball that goes a little bit harder. Uh, however, um, there, there, there's still some softness to it. If, if you get what I'm saying, like there's still uh, there's stuff plus is like between 99 and 105 like the both of them you know like it's okay they're they're not like popping like green at 160 you know what i mean like they they did some stuff it's okay i don't trust them 100 percent. neither of them i would be very careful lazardo on the road in philadelphia no like that that ain't happening what's his next start i'd like to know his next start that says more about at philadelphia though and and not wanting to throw I don't know, non-top 40 starters there. And Lizardo's... Yeah, so did the Corsian? It's, it's tracking that way, I think. Yeah, I mean, Toronto is a team that I, I want nothing to do with. I'm not playing Jose Urquidy against the Jays where I can help it this week. And I I like Urquidy. The model still likes him. I know it's been a bumpy start so far, but I want nothing to do with the Jays when it comes to Urquidy and, and guys in this range. So I, I wouldn't look at the the lack of confidence in Lazardo at Philly and say, eh, that's not much of a step forward. It's no, this is a matchup that we're generally staying away from. Let me get the schedule. What's where, where are the Marlins playing right now? I need schedule music. Where do you go? <laughs> I go to the road, wire grid. Okay. So Lazardo's got Lazardo's got St. Louis at home. Lazardo's okay. got a good schedule. That's the start. He's got St. Louis at home and Atlanta on the road this Dad! week. You, but you got to take them both in weekly leagues. I know. So you're using them in weekly leagues. I guess I'm using them in the weekly league, but if I could avoid that Atlanta start, I would not want to do that. All right. So if you're in the 3 0 show, my prediction league, is he does not do that well in that Atlanta start. Sure. And then he's home against Seattle in the only start next week. So two out of three, I'm using him. Yeah. And it's so really three good. out of three that's because a, I think that's a pretty leagues. good example. That's that, I think the Atlanta line is better than the Philly line. Because Atlanta is not Philadelphia, but it is offensive friendly and it's a good lineup. Park's not as extreme. Still no Acuna. Lineup is scary. Uh, yeah. even, even without Acuna, it's a lineup you don't want to face. But You got uh, Haney on that grid? Yeah, he's got at San Diego coming up this weekend. Nothing to be worried about there. Home against mm-hmm. the Tigers next week. Nothing mm-hmm. to worry about there. So two green lights for him next yeah. two times out. I do think of all these guys... Heaney, I mean, it's interesting, too. They've really kind of changed up the fastball, right? He used to be more of a, a sinker guy. He's going heavier with the four-seamer now, kind of splitting it almost evenly with the slider. He's basically a two-pitch guy right now, the way they've been using him. That's still an easy way to give up homers. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's still a two-pitch guy with a homer problem. You know, It's like, let's just remember that. Nothing that he's done has been like, oh, he's going he's gonna to stop giving up homers. <laughs> like, yeah. well, I like what he's done. And I think he's going to maximize what he's what he's got, but there are going to be teams that can touch him up. There's going to be some right-handed heavy teams that can touch him up. 
all we're going to do is we're just going to get to the end of April and people are going to have their their buy low and sell high articles and podcasts and everyone's going to say to sell high on Andrew Heaney. Andrew Heaney. And yeah. <laughs> he's going to be more of a hold or a buy and, uh, until he gives us a reason. I'm just saying he's schedule to. dependent. Yeah. Lizardo and Haney of that group are more schedule dependent. I'm more likely to say start the other guys all the time. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash. Or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant. Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Here's my question for you, and this goes back to what we were getting at earlier. What is the actual difference right now between Andrew Heaney and Chris Archer? I mean, I know they throw with different hands. I, I Thank you. If if you let's slide to, but I'm saying two pitch guys, yeah, with ugly ratio problems in the past, but always great Home strikeout issues. minus walk rates. Both of them have always had great strikeout minus walk rates, and then they're right. good. They, they and they're the type of guys that in any given season could just get lucky on homers and have a great season. Which that describes some of Archer. If you yes, Archer is a great place to look. Look at Archer's because he had some great seasons. Archer is the guy that I started picking up. The rest of the time, he gave up homers. (laughs) He was one of my most added players this weekend. I didn't, I I mean, as of Friday, he wasn't really someone I was thinking about, but it was part of the the weekend preparation. I was like, actually, this this looks okay. He's healthy right now. A lot of the issues with him are health. AL Central, a lot of spots where I'm going to use him. Had a two-start week coming up this week at Kansas City and then home against the White Sox, which... The first one is soft enough to justify it. Yeah, but but I'll take my chances. I mean, hopefully he's had since 2019. I just think this could actually work out about the same way. And I know it's weird to say that with Heaney coming off of a really good outing last time, but these two guys are probably more similar for our purposes than we would think based on how they're valued by the market right now. Yeah, Archer's really interesting too because uh, he was giving up, uh, you know, round one homer per nine before the rabbit ball emerged in 2015. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he has given up more like a homer and a third per nine since. And his ERA has gone from sitting in the three threes to sitting in the low fours, basically, even when he was healthy. 
Um, there is some early evidence that home run rate is down. And there is a tweet from Derek Cardi that you can look at that it's down more than uh, 2015. So it's down back to, to where it was in 2015 when Archer was given up, you know, 0.8 homers per nine. Derek Cardi has uh, looked at it and adjusted for temperature um, and all of the sort of uh, characteristics of the batted balls. And uh, it's down from, uh, you know, what? let me find it. It was... Uh, it was in the fives before five percent, um, and it is now four point three percent. So I just want to get the full tweet to to give you the uh, accounting. But um, let's see here. This is all replies because everyone's asking about it. Uh, so this is accounting for weather. 2018, 4.5%. 2019, 5.5%. That was the rabbit ball. That's the year we, we broke all the records. 2020, 5.2%. 2021, 5.0%. Uh, 2021 is when they started putting the new ball in that was supposed to be deadened, except they used some of the 2020 ball. So there was a mix in 2021 of the ball we're using now and the ball from 2020. So that actually makes sense. You go from 5.2% in 2020 to 5.5% in 2021 to maybe 4.3% in 2022. It's early going. I think the pitchers are ahead of the hitters and there's, you know, in the first couple of weeks anyway. So that is something that's hard to account for in, in a model like this. So I would guess that we end up with 2018 home run rates. Uh, in 2018, Archer gave up a uh, 1.15 homers per nine. That's just one player, but um, but if you want to think of where we're at, we're we're going back from before the sort of rabbit ball, and we're going to have some pitchers that used to be really homer friendly having some of their best home run rates this year. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, a, a, an appropriate adjustment on the dial. Potentially, based on what the league was like trying to do. That could be as much of what's going to happen with Haney this year as any sort of changes he made, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's it's 30% adjustments he made and 70% the ball. Like that. Right. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's, you know, little from column A, a lot more from, from column B. Uh, to close the book on, on Mike's question, you know, you had Brash and Green up in that first group together, and McGill was kind of in that first group. Is Lizardo part of that conversation? If you're looking longer term, at least, no? You still fall short? I don't like it. 101 stuff plus on the four seam with this with this change is the best shape he's ever had. I, I think it's a bad fastball. Also, he's throwing it like 97. Do I have confidence he's going to throw it 97 next year? No. Hmm. So I think next year you're likely to have a you know 105 stuff plus curveball and like a 95 stuff plus four seam. I just don't think that's a profile I want to bet on long term. Now I'd put him ahead of Heaney and Cobb and Nestor Cortez long term, but yes. I guess that keeps him behind Brash Green and yeah. Tyler McGill. Yeah, long term he's he's ahead of those veterans. Yeah. Because I guess there's there is some percentage. I don't know what the percentage is. There's some percentage chance that he could uh, improve the shape on his on his pitches within a second year there. You know. Yeah, I think that's fair. I just think it's a tough slot, dude. You know, he throws out of this this weird slot that's just more conducive to sinker throwing. It's not a slot that uh, people are selecting for right now. Let's move on to uh, another question here. Thank you for that question, Mike. This one comes in from 
Josh. Josh wants to know, am I mad at Jacob DeGrom or am I just wrong? Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, I need some help figuring out how upset I should be with DeGrom's unending parade of injuries. DeGrom has followed a league-wide trend by keeping his average fastball velocity very close to his max velocity. Now he's had incredible results, but he's also missed an enormous amount of time over the last several years with so much talent at his disposal. Why doesn't DeGrom keep his average fastball closer to 95 to 96 to try and keep himself healthy? I'd much rather see him as the fifth best pitcher in baseball and play most of the time than for him to be the best pitcher in baseball and miss half of each season. Josh points out an example. When he was younger, Justin Verlander held a 94-95 average fastball velocity, even though he could hit 100 and he was extremely durable. Maybe it's not fair to compare those guys, but it seems like DeGrom could benefit from a change in approach here. What do you think? Am I on to something here? No, I think he's 100% right. There's even a study from Glenn Fleisick about uh, the relationship between fastball velocity and elbow varus torque in professional baseball. Does greater velocity suggest higher stress on the ulnar collateral ligament? <laughs> I love science so much. <laughs> that was my science voice. Uh, yeah. the, uh, there was a, a takeaway here, uh, and I asked Glenn about it uh, when I wrote about this back in 2017. And he said... Um, there's a strong relationship correlation within a person that the faster the throat you throw, the more torque you produce on your elbow. There's not a strong association between among people, meaning that, you know, somebody's 94, Noah Syndergaard might be able to throw 94 easier than Zach Granke, right? <laughs> and that's, that's the point is that uh, the stress on the elbow matters how close you are to your own personal max. So he says here, looking at one person, the faster you throw, the closer you throw to your maximum, the more torque you put on your arm. So 100%. I think um, I think we saw it with Chris Sale too, right? Chris Sale was uh, more largely healthy and had a pretty good baseline of, of success in Chicago. And he was he he had a sort of six mile an hour range. Uh, up to his up to his maximum. Then he goes to Boston. They say throw harder. He had some amazing years there and some really good uh, output. But also here come the injuries a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's the it's the problem with pushing pitching development this way. But I would also wonder: Are we looking at a pitcher's established max velocity in games and saying that's his max, or? are we talking about something that a pitcher could do on the side in a workout, right? Like that, that those are two different numbers. I, I think we might not see the true max for some guys because they've figured out where they comfortably should be. This is also uh, really important for when people talk about, Oh, that guy's tired or how many pitches do you throw in that start? And you know, Oh, can we take this guy out of this no hitter or how many pitches does he have? You know, that's uh, there's a lot of stuff we don't see. I think that was a great point for you to pick, pick that up. There's a lot of pitches we don't see. There's a lot of bullpens we don't see or lack of bullpens. There's a lot of training that we just don't know and we don't see. And so you're right. There's uh, There are some personal maxes that uh, aren't hit in games. But I would assume that given adrenaline and the fact that the games uh, are what get them paid, <laughs> that the, most of the time they're hitting their maxes in the, in the games. However... Are you going to tell a guy, you know, you just made it to the big leagues, you know, if you get hurt here, you get big league money. I even heard someone say that they, they heard a player say, I'm just going to throw as hard as I can for the next week. And if I, if something pops, I'm going to be on the major league IL and get major league money and service time. So 
you know, uh, I think it's a uh, it's a tough one for uh, any. It's a tough one to say to tell people, no, you can't do that. Anybody who's going to go into the major league game right now is going to do the most they can. Also, the game is just asking everybody to do their peak athletic performance while they're in the game. You know, we're doing load management. We're doing all sorts of different training to like make sure that they get rest and recovery. And we're, we're trying to do as much as we can to keep them healthy. But when we're in the game, we want you to give 100%, like literally 100%. So that's just, that's the way the game is. I mean, look at basketball. I watch basketball. They are, the, the, what we ask big men to do in today's basketball is not what they used to do. Like, I, I don't even think that Shaq, could necessarily keep like keep pace with some of the big men today. If you look at DeAndre Ayton, you look at Jokic, you look at these big guys now, they run, they sprint, they're fast. Like they are running nonstop. We're asking them to run at 100% almost the entire time they're in the game. We train them to do that. We give them as much rest as we can, but we're asking them to give 100% in the game. So I, I don't know, you know, it's not, I, maybe there's some rule changes that we could explore and stuff, but that's, that's what we ask people to do when they get in the game. Well, I think if you, this is always the great debate of what would happen if this player played a different era. Like if you, if Shaq didn't come up 30 years ago, if Shaq came up five years ago, he would have been different all along. Like the, the way yeah, he was maybe coached, he the way he trained, maybe the way his body he prepared. Would look yeah. Right. He might've been a more lean version of Shaq, which it's just a weird thought but anyway yeah. it's just those kinds of things are always out of my mind like how how different would could Babe Ruth hit today's pitching Pro- probably like I, especially I mean, if you gave him the training I mean right. he had like obviously great bat to ball and like you know you know great eyes so like yeah but but if you if you dropped him in without the training well, yeah he <laughs> it would look like witchcraft to him like, <laughs> yeah. like yes of course not but to to go through the exercise you put the player like through a development arc Similar to the other players of the era that you're talking about. You can't just pick a player I up from say, 70 years ago and throw him on the field and be like, good luck, buddy. To answer your question for DeGrom, I think DeGrom would have maybe half the K rate he has now. And maybe twice the innings. It would be funny it, if he ended up with the same amount of strikeouts. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, half the K rate? or You're talking like 23%? I mean, he has like the best K rate of all time, but it's tied to throwing as hard as he can when he's in there. You know what I mean? Like, and it was back. I mean, back when he was giving us more innings back in 2015, 27.3% K rate. Still very good. I'm not saying, okay, innings. I was saying more half. the. I was saying half the raw. Yeah. That's right, guys. Well, I think we've been frustrated by this, this part of pitching for a while. And it would be interesting to see like if, if DeGrom makes that decision coming off this injury, is he going to come back and try and max out again? I mean, he said before he's going to opt out. So mm-hmm. if he's still, so he wants the best performance while he's on the field. Yeah. I think it'll tell us a lot about how he views health relative to his approach, uh, but a good question. And one that we wrestle with uh, all the time on this generally pod. baseball, like as an, if you're looking at averages, generally pitchers are throwing close to their maximum. And they have been, it happened first in the playoffs. And then people were like, hey, if I'm going to throw as hard as I can in the playoffs, well, you know, I get paid off of all my year. So maybe I should just throw as hard as I can all year. 
Let's get to a question about Kyle Wright. Mentioned previously that his curveball usage was way up. He's also throwing more changeups. And there's a question from Paul. Just wants to know if there's anything else going on with Wright that's caused him to get off to a great start. He was on the opposite side of Mackenzie Gore's big league debut. Pitched very well against San Diego. So two good starts from Kyle Wright. Obviously, a lot of pedigree there. And as Paul pointed out in his email, back during the lockout, not being able to work with Atlanta's coaches, he actually went back to work with some old coaches, I think probably going back to his days at, at Vanderbilt. So what are you seeing with Kyle Wright here through his first two starts uh, of 2022? To me, he just looks like a completely different pitcher than we've seen in the past in Atlanta. Yeah, a little bit more of a vertical curveball, but what I really like is that he has more drop on his curveball than he had last year, and it's four miles an hour faster. <laughs> like usually, more there's more a trade drop off. Both. Yeah, yeah. So when you do both of those things, that's really good. Um, and I think that you know, I think that there's also a thing that's happening in baseball where you know people are being pushed towards the four seamer because that's where baseball is. Uh, he just never had a good four seamer. And, you know, I think turfing a bad four seamer in his case and going with a sinker, which, you know, does not, uh, you know, rate that highly in the model. And I don't think is an amazing sinker. And if he does get hit, it'll be a problem. Uh, But the sinker has, for example, an 82 stuff plus and his four seam last year, I think, had a 70 stuff plus. So you're still, you know, you're swimming upstream. You're still doing better here. Um, I do like uh, the improved curveball also because it gives him a legit three-pitch mix. He seems to command his secondaries pretty well. Um, And so right now, he's basically 103s across the board. And I think that makes him a slightly above-average pitcher. I think I would trust him a little bit more than Lazardo. That's where I was going to go. I think I'm going to put him in that territory. If we're talking about rankings right now, I think the, that green brash grouping uh, is in the 30s and 40s. I would say that the Lizardo Haney is still in that sort of 70s for me. I mean, it's it's up from where they were ahead of season, but I just don't trust them that much. 70s is where I have people where the schedule matters. I think Wright would be, you know, early 70s for me, but maybe maybe late 60s. But uh, he's definitely climbed up the rankings. And I think the challenge here is finding the next one, right? If you missed out on Kyle Wright, you didn't jump in the first week, maybe you didn't have clear cuts, you thought the players you had were just as good, if not better, you wonder, oh, who could be the next one? And I think that's where that pitching model comes in so handy. And seeing some players that are still not in those ideal roles, we've talked about Strider, we've talked about Rowanzi Contreras. Um, I, I would Contreras. say... I, I picked up a lot of Contreras this Sunday. And some of my deeper leagues, Corbin Martin was the guy that I was taking a chance on because it just looks like he's put it back together. And I I think opportunities are are plentiful in Arizona. It's not going to take much for him to end up back in that rotation. So it just depends on the type of league you're in and whether or not you can wait on a non-starter. But if you're in that situation, and that's more keeper in Dynasty, it's more mono-league-centric to play that way, I would say Corbin Martin has the up arrow next to his name again. Yeah, he does have four command. Uh, it's an interesting uh, line right now. Uh, I've got uh, one start in here with a 106 uh, stuff plus 91 location plus 95 pitching plus. That's something that has been true for Martin uh, ever since he's pitched in front of the machines for us. But uh, I do think there's opportunity in that rotation. He's definitely somebody uh, I picked up. Contreras, uh, same story actually. 109 stuff plus. 
89 command plus, 92 pitching plus. But um, I think that the, you know, where Martin has had some questions of command throughout his career, I, I don't think those questions have been as loud for Ronzi Contreras. So I'm willing to look past that as a two-start small sample thing. Christian Javier, uh, do you think he's, no, he's already, he's already owned everywhere. Yeah, he's he's pretty much rostered in. Nice McCullers injury. Uh, let me see. Carlos Hernandez has a big start coming up uh, tomorrow. I'm watching that one uh, pretty pretty t- intensely because 110 stuff plus dis- despite the velocity going down, but 96 uh, pitching plus because of the poor uh, command. And I actually asked a scout because I was considering a, a trade for Carlos Hernandez this weekend. I, I did connect with a scout and ask him <laughs> what they what they thought from their last viewing of Carlos Hernandez and if they thought they had enough he had enough command to make it as a starter and they thought that he did not. Oh well he'll be a really good reliever if it doesn't work out for him as a starter, but you know, um still looking at him and seeing more to like than I see with a lot of the other Royals pitchers, which uh, interestingly enough, maybe you saw this tweet, this came out on Sunday from Pitching underscore bot Cameron Grove. We talked about some of the stuff he's done on this pod before, but he had a, a great chart. It was team pitching summaries to this point in 2022 where he had poor stuff, good locations up in the top left corner, poor pitching all around, bottom left. You don't want to be down there. Uh, good stuff, poor locations down in the right corner, and then good stuff in good locations. Yeah, that's the, those are the teams you want to look at up in the top right. And the usual suspects, the Rays, the Giants, they're up in the top right corner. Marlins are up there. That's not a huge surprise either, given how much we like their young pitching. The Mets are up there. The Red Sox are up there. And the Orioles are up there. And I thought the Orioles were interesting seeing that and seeing some of the names that have have jumped up in in the pitching plus model. Tyler Wells and Keegan Aiken are two guys. And and I think Michael Bauman out of the bullpen, too. Is Keegan Aiken good enough to be a useful starter? I mean, I think with Wells, we saw the bounce back that second time out. And well, Keegan Aiken, is, is there more of a workload coming? That's that's the question I have about yeah. him. There's a there's a relationship between how many pitches you have in an outing and your stuff plus, right? So he's had 33 pitches per you know times two, 66. He's averaged 33 pitches. So I would say that's pretty close to reliever workload. Um, and so he's thrown shown this 110 stuff plus in 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 the reliever workload. I would regress that to maybe a 102, 103 uh, as a starter. And then now you're you're uh, putting him in that park against maybe the Yankees and stuff. So I would say maybe on him. Wells has been doing what he's been doing in longer uh, stints. So he's averaged uh, almost 60 pitches per outing and has the 110 stuff plus. So I think Wells' the second uh, uh, outing was a great bounce back. And uh, I don't know. I'm going to say I, I'm just I don't know on Aiken. I'm going to say bye on Wells. I think that's that's a buy for me. I think he showed enough that I'm I'm in. Tyler Wells' track record in the minors was actually really good. Good starter coming through. Uh, it was in the Twins organization. Didn't pitch in 19 and 20 injury and lost minor league season. So there's a track record here to get excited about. There are underlying numbers to like. There are opportunities in Baltimore. And yeah, the the division still presents a lot of tough matchups. But as we know, with fences moving back at Camden Yards, it's less scary and of a home park than it has ball, been right and a new ball is it seeing seeing where logan webb is in the model right now and seeing where tyler wells is right now if you're saying who could be this year's logan webb 
based I mean, on the model, it's, it's not I think extreme. It's Tyler Megill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, but but yeah, no. I mean, Tyler Wells. Uh, Tyler Wells. I mean, who would it be like? It'd be more like more like this year's Drew Rasmussen or something, right? Like a reliever that stretched out and surprised us. Yeah, but the thing is, like, I think we we put Wells in the reliever bucket just because that's what the Orioles did with him last year. But he mm-hmm. wasn't a reliever before that. He was a good starter. Yeah. You know, plenty uh, of pitches I just, too. I had an interesting thought about the twins placement on that graph. It's not good. Oh, it's um, bad. It's the worst. And <laughs> yet, uh, we know, for example, like I worked with Ethan Moore. He went to Minnesota. We know that uh, Josh Kalk, who used to work uh, publicly with stuff type metrics and worked with the Rays on pitching, we know that there's these two people that care about. Uh, you know these kind of things, stuff metrics and stuff. So uh, you know, I think it's a it it. I I do not like appeals to authority, right? Like we're we're trying to all figure this out ourselves, and we don't want to just say, well, baseball teams know better or whatever. You know what I mean? But there is a little bit of a whiff as maybe the Twins have a deception metric. That and it, it, the one thing that's really missing from Stuff Plus that that an internal team could have that's better than what we have out here is deception because they have the angles of the forearm, they have uh, stuff like how long can you see the ball before it's released, and if you look at guys, I think of specifically Bailey Ober and Joe Ryan who are in their rotation right now. They have reasons to believe that they could be dis- more deceptive than have actual stuff. So maybe, maybe we're missing ten points of deception, you know, that that should be in stuff plus that they have internally that we don't. Bailey Ober is extreme over the top, like Ian Anderson, and yet has uh, some interesting profiles on his pitches. Maybe, maybe I'm not. Maybe the model is not uh, giving it enough credit. And then Joe Ryan leads with his elbow, uh, and the ball pops up like Yusmer uh, Petit. So. You know, maybe they have a deception number that brings their stuff plus up number internally that we're just not seeing. I guess uh, as I look at the chart, which is now on the screen if you're watching us on YouTube, but you should give Cameron a follow. Anyway, lots of great pitching insight from him on Twitter. The Dodgers are in a, a weird spot there. They're definitely more left on this chart than you'd expect. I mean, they're kind of above the, the center <laughs> line vertically, but that's a strange placement. One thing I would say is that I one thing I know that uh, that our stuff model has that the ha- Cameron hasn't put in his yet or is, is studying it um, and, and he's aware of it is uh, we have seam shifted wake in our stuff plus and I know for a fact that the Dodgers are pretty heavily into seam shifted wake <laughs> like uh, they've been adding sweepers to a lot of their pitchers not every sweeper benefits from seam shifted wake but most sweepers uh, do have a benefit from seam shifted wake. So I would assume that once you add in seam shifted weight, because when I look at my model, the Dodgers, there is a lot of similarity, of course, but the Dodgers are a plus team. The Dodgers last year, I think it was the Dodgers, Yankees, and Rays had the best stuff in baseball. Yeah. Always interesting stuff, though. So appreciate Cameron tweeting that because I thought it was food for thought, especially with a few Orioles showing up uh, high individually in your model. Since we were talking about poppers, you know, guys that could that that may be out there, I just wanted to show a, a quick shout out to Nicola Dolo. Uh, he belongs in this conversation of that we just had of high stuff, low location. Uh, he had like a one nineteen stuff plus in his first start, and the reason why you would bet on guys that have high location, high stuff, and low location numbers in their first few starts is that stuff is stickier and becomes stabilizes faster. 
So uh, the location numbers may just be one start aberrances for Lodolo and Ronzi and Corbin Martin, a little bit less so for Corbin Martin. But Yeah. Yeah, Lodolo and Ronzi Contreras, I think they fit into the same mold that we didn't expect control issues like based on, right. on the past. So I, I do think it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, thanks a lot for that question that got us down that road. I think that one was from Paul. At least the Kyle Wright question was, Alex Verdugo, early stat cast numbers look really good. He's got a couple more hits uh, in the early Monday game too. And the question we had about him was just a request to do a quick deep dive into his stat cast numbers so far. And any thoughts on how he has the second most defensive run saved in left field so far this season, actually since 2020 behind only Tyler O'Neill. So, uh, what do we think about Verdugo overall and any, any thoughts on his ceiling if he can start hitting lefties the way he did earlier in his career? I mean, the if Betts is doing everything wrong by StatCast in the early going, Verdugo is doing everything right, everything you would want to see out of him. He has raised his launch angle. He's upped his barrel percentage. He's hitting the ball harder on average or by sweet spot or by hard hit rate. All of his numbers are red, and he's doing it with a, uh, a shorter uh, strikeout rate, a really, really nice strikeout rate for right now. Strikeout rate becomes meaningful quickly. Uh, barrel rate becomes meaningful quickly. He has 29 batter balls. So like he's doing all the stuff that becomes meaningful quickly. I would point out that he's also seeing the most fastballs he's ever seen. And uh, it's kind of strange. He's seen 69% fastballs right now. So maybe he's doing some damage on breaking balls, but I would also assume that he would go back down to at least a 60% fastball rate uh, the rest of the season and that that will affect his numbers somewhat. It might be easier to lift a fastball, especially if you're getting high fastballs. It is easier to lift those than it is easier than it is to lift a low breaking ball. So, those are that's the one of the reasons why you know we look at these early numbers and we say they look great but to give him another week and see what happens if he you know hits some sinker ballers or some guys who are going to fill up the zone with breaking balls that he can't lift as well uh but you know if you want to see what it looks like to start out well and 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 fix uh, past wrongs like he's done everything you would ask for dugo to do to break out like he, he looks it looks beautiful Really, it looks, mm-hmm. it looks, it's primo. <laughs> it's like, it, what it's what you want. You have a guy who makes great contact, uh, has a good eye at the plate, and you're just like, can you just lift it? And he's lifting it. That's just been the recurring skills question with Verdugo: is can he get to more power? Because he does everything across the board well as a hitter. Otherwise, and you know, we've seen flashes of him hitting the ball in the air more consistently. It looks like. He is taking that next step just based on the start he's off right now. I think numbers against lefties, I, I would just throw the usual cautionary tale out there. Like We just haven't seen enough to know that he can or can't hit lefties. So if they keep giving him chances, I, I think with a hit tool like that, I'd be more inclined to bet on a player like Verdugo hitting same-handed pitching from the left side than your prototypical masher that has a lot more swing and miss in his profile. Yeah, yes, I, I agree. He has more ways to do something, right? There's a lot of guys who are all or nothing that face same-handed guys and then maybe lose the walk rate because they can't see it as well. 
And if you've lost the walk rate and you're all or nothing, then you can easily become a guy who hits 100 against same-handed guys, but just you know runs into one every once in a while. Uh, whereas Verdugo has more ways to be good. Uh, I just noticed this also. His average launch angle on fastballs right now is just short of 20. And uh, on breaking balls, it's up, um, at, but it's at closer to 12. So you can see right there that there may be some regression coming as he sees fewer fastballs. Still, uh, both of those numbers are higher than usual for his uh, entire career. So it could be a really good season for him. Thanks a lot for that question, John. Last question for today, Jaron Duran. Uh, this question comes from Terry. I haven't heard much about Jaron Duran this season. Curious what you guys think his role could be in the Boston offense. And, and we know he struggled last year, but the power and speed combo seems like it could be legit. Uh, part of the reason you haven't heard a lot about Jaron Duran this year is because he missed about 10 days on the COVID IL at AAA. He just started playing again on Sunday. He's got a hit in each of the three games he's played so far. He's got a couple of steals so far. I I still like him a bit as a post-hype sleeper. I think there might be some questions as to how... I don't know how much power he's going to have against big league pitching, even though he added a lot of power in the upper levels of the minor leagues. He's already 25 years old, played college ball and everything, so he's not a, a young player. I mean, I think Alex Verdugo is younger than Jaron Duran, if I'm not mistaken, which is really pretty interesting. But the the Duran situation, I mean, I don't know if I'm holding him outside of AL only leagues right now, you know, because I don't know when they're going to actually push him back onto this roster. I guess there's some room for him. Um, even with the story acquisition, because I'm looking right now at Fangraphs at the right field depth chart, and it's saying Bradley, J.D. Martinez, who's going to DH most of the time, Christian Arroyo, and Franchi Cordero. It's basically it's a platoon. It's it's a it's a Bradley Arroyo, Arroyo platoon. I think at this point. I mean, I think all you're looking for, if you're looking for Duran to push that out of place, is watch Duran strike out right. Uh, and whiff rate. I think that's probably one of the things they want him to work on most, right? If he can combine the power with a good strikeout, you know, walk rate, then he'll be up because he would be, he would offer an improvement over Jackie Bradley. Right now, he's projected to be sort of 10 to 15% worse than league average with a stick. I mean, that's already pretty close to where you would think Jackie Bradley would be. Right. I mean, Bradley, I think, is there in part because center field defense on the bench is a concern. I think Duran, he is actually a little bit younger than Verdugo, a few months younger, just to correct something I said earlier. Duran, I, I just think that they're, the speed, like cheap speed is hard to find. So as mm -hmm. soon as they flip that switch, even on the big side of a platoon potentially, that might be enough to play. Interested, yeah, yeah in, in leagues where you're starting five outfielders, you're talking about a 12-team league, he's probably going to be a nice pickup. And the other thing you got to keep in mind too this is a point that Al Melkier made on the Fantasy Baseball podcast on Friday. We're probably not going to have that big wave of call-ups because a lot of top prospects already debuted. So as you're thinking about spending fab, I think you can spend a little more aggressively because you're not saving it in mixed leagues. You're not having this early to mid-May, the typical fabapalooza where four or five really interesting prospects are all coming up at once. I mean, we'll get a yeah. handful of guys that come up here and there but I would err more on the side of spending than saving it also, in mixed leagues. It also makes me think about what you should be doing in weeks when you are um, 
when you're largely healthy and you think you don't have to make a move. So what I did in those leagues, like that's why I ended up with Ronzi Contreras is if I had a full starting rotation that I was happy with and I didn't really want to pick up a streamer, I picked up Ronzi Contreras, right? And I tried to do it for reasonably cheap so that I could have him on my bench. Maybe he becomes a full-time starter this week and he becomes a better option than my guy next year. So if you have a, 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 you, a fully healthy lineup, you're, lo- you're looking pretty good and you maybe have a spot to play with on your bench, then now is the time to put like a three to five dollar, you know, like a, a very small percentage uh, play on Duran if you can uh, to pick him up and put him on your bench. And then you don't even have to spend the 150 that it might take to get Duran if he has that big call up. Although it might depend on if he was drafted or not. Just check your rules. Yeah, he might have some leagues where he's not available until he actually comes up. But right. I, I do think. But One if he does, I've tried to do. it's probably to play, right? And it's probably to push Bradley into more of a backup. Yeah. And there's lots of ways that Jaron Duran can be useful. So still interested, even though the debut last year was underwhelming for Jaron Duran. If you've got questions for us for a future episode, by the way, send them via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com, or drop them underneath this video on YouTube. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit the like button because you can ask questions in the comment section. We'll be sure to sweep through those and bring those on to future shows as well. You can find Eno on Twitter at Enoceris. Find me at Derek Van Riper. And if you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. It's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.